Okay. Morning, everybody. Let me uh, invite you to bring your conversations to a close. <clears throat> morning. It's lovely to see you all this morning. Great that we can be together. Nice to hear the uh, murmuring of conversation happening. It's fantastic. Um, a few years back, Vix and I uh, and our kids bought a bit of a wreck of a house, some of you all know, over in Branksome. We spent a whole lot of time and money and energy and blood, sweat and tears to try and bring some life back into this house and to shape it and mold it and knock it about uh, and take what was essentially a wreck and do what was necessary to bring about order uh, and create a place where our family could dwell. And this house has become the context where, for the most part, healthy family life and loving relationships can flourish. The sermon series that we're at at the moment is called A House for My Name. And there's an echo in there in that God is and always has been building a house for his name in that he's taking the wreckage of humanity's poor decisions to rebel against him in the Garden of Eden and our ongoing natural predisposition to do so. And he is working through every situation and every life in every age and every generation to make this right and to create the means by which his family, his people, can come into his presence and dwell with him and can love him and he can love us. That's what God is doing. He's creating a house for his name, for his people, for us, to dwell with him. And we see this in every act of the Bible, from the very, very first verse in Genesis to the very last verse in Revelation. This series that we're in is taking us through the Old Testament, the history of God and humanity up to the point of the birth of Jesus. And so as we work through the Old Testament, we should see two things happening. Firstly, that in every age, God is unfolding this plan to build a house for his name and to bring us into that dwelling place with him. We should see that all throughout the Old Testament as we read that. And secondly, that all of history, all of the events, all of the lives, and all of the stories in the Old Testament are pointing forward to Jesus and to how he will, for once and for all, establish and preside over this house where man and God can dwell together and can enjoy the goodness of God and the fullness of life in relationship with him in his family. That's what's on offer this morning. Membership, uh, residency in God's family, in his household. This morning, we're going to look at this plan unfolding in the book of 2 Samuel through the life of a man named David. I took a photo of him. There he is up there. Who rises up from being an obscure shepherd boy in the youngest of the household of brothers and who God puts his hand on and anoints and brings up to become the king of Israel. And through all the ups and downs of David's life, and there are many, God will take the disparate tribes of Israel, this ragtag bunch of his people, and he will unite them into a mighty nation, and he will establish Jerusalem as the city of God and the place of his dwelling. It's here that God will build a house for his name and establish his people. And the idea is that as the nations of the earth look upon Israel and all that God has done through them and for them, that they might see something of the power and the glory and the mercy and the goodness of God and themselves be brought into worship and relationship with God. Yeah. 
And that's true for us as well, as the household of God, as the church, as the world look at us. They should see something of the goodness and mercy of God in us as well and be inclined to want to worship him. We're going to look at uh, three stories this morning in the book of 2 Samuel. All three stories occur during David's kingship over the nation. This is the humbled shepherd boy, of course, who has once upon a time bravely fought off Goliath and the Philistines, Israel's enemies, and now God has raised him up and exalted him as king over all Israel. And as we look at these three stories, I specifically want to draw out a particular theme, which is important for us now in how we live and worship today but also helps us to see another king coming over the horizon, King Jesus, who will appear on the scene about a thousand years later, and what he is like, and what he achieves over the household of God. And that theme is this, that humility comes before honor. That's the theme of this morning's talk. Before acclaim, before recognition, before the sort of exaltation that David receives, there must be a humility of heart. We'll see that in the life of David. We'll also see that in the life and work of Jesus. And it should also be helpful to us in how we should live in light of that. And this theme is important, not least of which, because rippling throughout all of Scripture is this kind of warning and invitation that God opposes the proud and the arrogant, those who think they know best and do things their own way against the instruction of God, but that he shows favor and blessing and mercy to the humble. That's the kind of heart that pleases God and the kind of heart that he's looking for. It's a kind of heart that is humble enough to recognize that God is in control, that his ways are right, and that we're in great need of him. That's ultimately what humility is. And arrogance and pride are, of course, the opposite of that. Arrogance and pride are actually at the root of all of humanity's problems. Since That's what causes ordinary folk like you and me to ignore and rebel against a holy and perfect God. There can be no other explanation, really. And therefore, we need saving from this situation, and we need help to restore our relationship with God and to be brought back into his family. In our first story, David has been elevated to king, and he unites all the disparate tribes of Israel into one nation. And as one of his first recorded acts, He marches on enemy-held Jerusalem, and he captures it, and he establishes it as the religious and political capital of Israel, the city of God, the place where God's people will live and God will be worshipped. Now, you might recall from other sermons in this series, that at that point in history, the place where mankind could meet with, with God was in a specially constructed tent called the tabernacle. And in that tent was the Ark of the Covenant. It was a wooden box covered in pure gold, built to exacting specifications that God had laid out. And this box, the Ark, was the place where God's presence settled, so that God and man could meet. And wherever Israel went on their journeys, the Ark went. The presence of God was always with his people. And God had given some very, very explicit instructions for not just the construction, but the transportation of the ark as well. And the reason for that is that because as the high high priest would approach the ark on behalf of the people, he would have to have an appropriate sense of the holiness and the awe of God that 
God wasn't just like anything or anyone else, that he was and is a holy and perfect God who had saved Israel and chose to make them his people and to dwell amongst them. And therefore, the instructions for the transportation of the ark was, uh, it was very, very clear that the ark was supposed to be carried on poles like you might carry a king or a queen and on your shoulders and only certain people could do it. And under no circumstances at all was the ark to be touched by human hands. In fact, God had made very clear in the law to Moses that to do so, to touch the ark with your hands, would invite certain death. That was very clear. And so David naturally says, okay, well, if I'm going to establish a city for God, then I'm going to need to go and retrieve the ark of the covenant, which at that point was uh, residing in the house of a man named Abinadab. And I'm going to need to set it up here in, Israel, in Jerusalem. And so off he goes, and he takes a whole army of men with him, and they gather the ark, and they put it on a cart, and they begin to transport it back to Jerusalem. But you might be able to tell already there's a problem. Remember, this talk this morning is about humility being the precursor to honor. And the problem that's about to be uncovered is a failure of the people to recognize that God is holy and that his laws and commands and expectations are to be followed and obeyed. And that to do this, this is true of us even today, requires a proactively decided posture of humility. It requires us to say that you are God and I'm not. Remember, biblical humility is about respect for God and recognizing your need for him. It's about recognizing that he's above us and that his ways are above us and are to be carefully followed. So let's read what happens in 2 Samuel 6, verse 1, as David goes to get the ark. It says, David again brought together all the young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Bala in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim, the angels on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with castanets and harps and lyres and tambourines and rattles and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark. What on earth is going on here? This is a pretty shocking story if you don't know the background. David and these 30,000 men have gone to go and get the ark of the presence of God in order to bring it back to Jerusalem so that God will be honored there. And so off they go. The ark goes on a cart. The cart stumbles. Uzzah reaches out to stop it from falling, and God strikes him down. What's going on? What's going on is a failure of humility and obedience. God had been really specific that if the ark was to be transported, that there were regulations by, about how and by whom it should be done. And that's not surprising, seeing that the ark was the place where God himself, his presence, resided. So you don't just chuck it on the back seat of your car, which was more or less what was happening here with the cart. Nice of them as it was to go and retrieve it, there were 
stipulations about its being transported. God had made very clear what was to be done, but David and other and the men had ignored that and acted through a very worldly, pragmatic view rather than in complete obedience to God. And the warning to us here is one of humility. Be careful that you don't relativize and treat God and his word casually as if he was just another thing in the world. He is God, after all. And we do need to remember that to follow a holy God requires a complete surrender to self. He is holy and perfect. We are not. He knows what's best. We do not. And to admit that takes humility. That's what David and Uzzah got wrong. Their attitude was, and this should really speak to us, one of an independence from God that was actually bordering on rebellion. And Uzzah places his hand on the ark in direct violation of God's law, and what happens to him in full sight of all of Israel is exactly what God had warned would happen if he'd done so. Our, uh, our commercial consumerist culture does not easily lend itself to the holiness and otherness of God. It's not what we very often first think of when we think of God or anything for that matter. We can get whatever we want, whenever we want it for the right price. And therefore, everything in the world is to some degree attainable and cheap, but not God. God is not like that. And we must remember that. We must remember not to become too casual with God and his ways. In the break between the first and second service, Matt and I were talking, and he reminded me about the time when, I don't know if you remember this, Donald Trump put his hand in the small of the Queen's back when he was showing her around. And there was uproar in the press. Even in our culture, even in our royalty, there are rules. You don't just put your hands on the Queen. How much more so? Holy God, the monarch above all the monarchs. God is holy. And we are, but for the grace of God through Jesus, not We must be careful that we, sinners saved by grace, don't become too casual and too familiar with the holiness of God because we know the idiom, familiarity, or the saying, familiarity breeds contempt, which is exactly the way that God's instructions are being treated here. In light of such a holy God, we would do well to heed the insights of the writer Jackie Hill Perry. She says, The presumptuous sin of Uzzah is that he assumed his hands were less polluted than the dirt. Ouch. That really speaks to me. Humility recognizes that God is holy and perfect and that we really aren't. Our sin and our rebellion against God has stained our hands. And David remembers this. And a few months later, he returns to try again. And this time he does it properly. He does it in line with God's instructions, and he successfully does bring the ark back into Jerusalem, and this time to great celebration. But note how his posture and attitude towards God has changed now. This is 2 Samuel 6, verse 13. It says, When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he, David, sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. There was sacrifice, reverence, and worship. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, his wife, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. This time, 
David's got it right. And even though he's the king, he's stripped off all his royal robes before God, and he's leading the worship procession, passionately dancing and singing, and he's dressed in a simple linen robe, an ephod, like a priest would have. He's modeling humility before the Lord. But his wife, Michael, sees it, and it says that she hated him for it. Here's verse 20. When David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. In other words, what kind of a king behaves like this and dresses like this without all his royal finery, dancing around like a common man? And I love David's response in verse 21. David replies, I will celebrate before the Lord, and I will become even more undignified than this, and I'll be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I'll be held in high honor. This time David's got it. Humility before honor. That all of God's ways are right, and that there is safety and blessing in obedience to them. When my kids were very little, we used to have a jokey phrase that we used between us when they didn't listen to me or were a bit cheeky or whatever. I'm thinking of reinstating it, actually. And it was really just meant to be a joke, but it was also meant to set in place something of the order in which things needed to be done in our household. And that phrase was this. I'm the dad, and you're the girl. I would say to them something like, okay, it's time to tidy up now, or time to go for a bath or something, and they would say no, and I would reply with, I think you're misunderstanding the relational dynamic here. I'm the dad. I get to decide how the household should operate, and you're the girl. You get to operate within these rules. But there's also safety for you in that. Listen to me. I'm 35 years older than you, and I know a few things, and your mum and I know how to best keep you alive and how to keep you healthy and thriving. So in order to keep you safe, the best thing I can remind you of right now is this. I'm the dad. And you're the girl. If Uzzah and even David's wife, Michael, had got that dynamic right, things would have been a whole lot different. If they had shown humility to the ways of the father, they would have stayed safe and thrived. As it was, Uzzah ends up dead, and Michael ends up barren, which cuts off her entire bloodline, and bloodlines were important then, as they are now. Honor was established through your bloodline. Having children was seen as a sign of God's favor on you, and not to was a sign of shame. No humility before God, no honor. In our second story, we're in 2 Samuel 7, and this is a profound chapter in understanding something of what it means that God is building a house for his name and what that house will be like. David realizes that he's living in a wonderful palace in Jerusalem at the Ark of the Covenant, where God resides, is in a tent, which was also God's instruction, by the way. And so David decides that he's going to build a house for the Lord, a temple or something wondrous in which the Ark of the Covenant can be housed. And God speaks to David through the prophet Nathan and says, essentially, I've never lived in a house. I've deliberately not done so, so that when my people have moved, as they have for centuries, I've gone with them. That's the whole deal. I love you. I'm your God. You're my people. I want to be with you. Why do I need a house? But then God turns the whole story around in 2 Samuel 7:11. He says, the Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. 
In other words, I know you want to build a house for me, David. Nice idea, but no thanks. But instead, I'll build a house for you. I'll, I'll establish a dwelling for you. And what will that house be like? Verse 12. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. Verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This is incredible. God is promising to build a house for David, a dynasty, a family line, a people, an offspring. Okay, just really dial in here for a moment, because this interaction in 2 Samuel 7 is a key chapter in understanding what God is doing and the type of house that he's building. He's saying to David that through David's royal line, a king will come, and that this king will build God's temple, God's house, his dwelling place, and it will be a kingdom that endures forever. And David gets it. If you are using the church Bibles, there's a footnote at the bottom that uh, refers to 2 Samuel 7, uh, 19. David says, I can see that this promise refers not just to me and my household, but to the entire human race. It's a, it's a glimpse and a foresight of a much greater David on the horizon, a, a different king, not just for Israel, but for the whole earth. Jesus, the Messiah, the eternal king of every man and woman is starting to come into view. And so we see in this story parallels with the future king, Jesus, the king who will come through David's lion, whose throne is eternal, who will be called the son of David, who will build a house for God, the king who will reign forever, and the king through whom a house, a meeting place, a dwelling place for the people of God will be established. It's an amazing promise. It's all going so well. This is the high point of the story. And then David does the unthinkable. He does what kings throughout human history do, what those exalted to high human place so often do, which is just one of the reasons why desiring high position and pride is so often warned against in Scripture. He fails the test of humility, and he cashes in on his position of honor. He takes, he grasps at that which isn't his. He does a Vladimir Putin, and he grasps beyond his remit. In this third story, David looks down from the palace window one evening, and he sees a beautiful woman called Bathsheba, and he wants her. He's grasping. But the problem is that Bathsheba is married to one of David's friends and a mighty fighting soldier, no less, a man named Uriah. Now, this, of course, is the point at which David should have just said no to the temptation before him. For all of us, resisting that which is ungodly requires submission and humility to God's ways. But David takes her and sleeps with her anyway. And later on, when, David, when she tells David that she's pregnant with his child, he panics and he has her husband Uriah killed so that he can marry her. In his arrogance and his independence towards God, he has solved his own problem, right? Well, wrong, because God sees all of this, of course, and he sends Nathan the prophet back to confront David. And to say that he gets a telling off is an understatement. Listen to what Nathan says to him. This is so tragically soon after God makes this beautiful promise to build an eternal royal house for and through David. 2 Samuel 12, 7. God says to David, 
I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hands of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah, and if this had all been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Imagine God saying that to you. Imagine God saying that the sword, that violence, will never again leave your house and that the very household that God has promised David is now the place that will be his downfall. If you read on, in later years, David's sons will turn against him and turn against against each other, and his whole household falls apart. But what happens next in this story is both a tragedy and it's also an important clue for how God will redeem this situation and keep the plan on track to gather a people and bring us back into relationship with him. Nathan says to David that because you've shown utter contempt for the Lord, that this child that you fathered with Bathsheba, God is going to take him from you. And so Bathsheba gives birth to this illegitimate son of David, and the child becomes ill to the point of death. And David, it says, pleaded with the Lord, and he repents, and he expresses his sorrow and his failings before God. He fasts, and he spends nights lying on sackcloth and rags, and he refuses to get up off the floor and to eat. And then, after a week, the son dies. And David gets up, and he washes, and he dresses, and he goes into the house of the Lord, and he worships, and then he goes home, and he eats a hearty meal. And everyone in his household says, why on earth are you acting like this? When your son was alive, you behaved like he was dead. And now that he's dead, you're eating and drinking and carrying on. And David says, he's gone. I can't bring him back. And he carries on eating. Now, that story sounds outrageous to our 21st century ears. And even to David's household, it seemed odd. But there's something about the story which has a a glimmer of the gospel about it, about Jesus, about the coming king and the type of life he would live. Remember, all of the Old Testament is pointing forward towards Jesus. It's reminding us that there is a very serious problem in our relationship with God, but that a plan is unfolding to remedy this situation. And that right at the heart of this plan is Jesus, the Savior. Here with David... In the story, there has been sin, serious sin, utter contempt for the Lord, it says. And in response to that, a son is stricken and he dies. And the person guilty of the sin goes free. And not only in that, he then enjoys what God provides, in this case, a feast. What does that sound like? David has murdered his friend so that he can sleep with his wife. If there's any justice in the world, David should die for his crimes. But God shows unmerited forgiveness and favor to David and preserves him because that's what he promised to do. And instead, a son dies for the sin of another. And when the son has died, David is restored to fullness of life. That's what happens in the gospel. A son dies for the crimes of others, us. We are forgiven. And we rise up out of the dirt and our tears are wiped away And we're invited to feast at a table with God. You'll know that David was a songwriter as well. He contributed about half the songs that make up the book of Psalms. Listen to this psalm as you think back over the story that I've just told you. This is Psalm 40. David says, I waited 
patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and he heard my cry. He lifted me up out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. This is the message at the heart of the gospel. We are the ones in the slimy pit, in all the mud and sticky clay, and we can't get out. To practice humility is to recognize this. All that we can do is call out to the Lord and trust and rely on Him for our salvation. That's what it means to wait patiently for the Lord. It's not like waiting patiently for a bus. It means to put your full trust and reliance and your weight on Him. And as for this relationship between humility and honor, the unbelievable truth, the unbelievable truth that underscores our whole human experience is that in spite of our slime and mud and crime and contempt against God, a son was stricken on our behalf and his life was unjustly taken from him and at that very moment all the mud and the muck came off us and God reached in and lifted us out of the pit and placed us on a solid rock and filled our mouths with a new song, with worship. And now we get to feast with him, to commune with and to enjoy God and his goodness. What greater honor than that? And all of this is possible because of what we see in the life of Jesus, who himself, in utter humility to the will of God, gave up his life for us. Paul puts this so beautifully in the book of Philippians. He says that Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and then being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. But look what happens next. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Obedience before exaltation. Humility before honor. Jesus grasped at nothing. He claimed nothing as his right. He is the very nature, the exact image and perfect representation of God with all of heaven's resources at his disposal. He's more glorious and mighty than any king before him and any king after him. Yet he took the nature of a servant and humbled himself. How? Verse 8, by becoming obedient to God, even to the point of his death. That's the model. That's the big idea. To practice humility is to practice what it means to become fully obedient to God. Humility recognizes that we are in the pit. It's a pit of our own making and utterly unable to save ourselves. And as we call out to Jesus for his help and salvation, it's then that he comes, comes to us. He lifts up our heads and he removes us from the pit, and he places us on a high place, and invites us into relationship with him, to feast with him. He offers us all that is his. It's humility before honor. We can't do this ourselves. We are, all of us, in need of God. 
I said in the first service that even as I prepared this message this week, I found it excruciatingly difficult for a number of reasons, much more difficult than usual. And at about midday yesterday morning, as I attempted a third rewrite of the sermon, I went for a walk, feeling pretty despairing, and I called out to the Lord about this, and he reminded me, well, you are trying to encourage people in humility after all, so recognize your own weakness in this, and know that my grace is sufficient for you, that even in your weakness, I am strong, now wait patiently for me. And maybe you need to hear that message again this morning, that in spite of what you're facing, your situation, your circumstances, your life condition, that his grace is sufficient for you. That even in your weakness, he is strong. There is no greater shame than to distance yourself from God and to live in independence from him. And there is no greater humility than to recognize that he is all that you need. And there is no greater honor than to be lifted up by him and strengthened by his Holy Spirit and to be brought into his family. And that invitation is open to you today, be it for the first time or whether you just need to take your stand in this gospel truth again. Humility before honor. There was simply no one, no character in human history who exemplified humility more deeply than Jesus. He owned nothing. What little he had, he gave up for you and me. And Even as he hung on the cross, his body ripped to shreds to pay the price of our sin. Even then, when he could have called down multitudes of angels to fight for him, even then, he was looking at the people who put him there and saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's the call on the Christian life. It's about being conformed to the nature of a servant. Or to be more specific in this case, to be conformed to the nature of the ultimate servant, Jesus, by being obedient to God and his purposes. And it's about recognizing that we need someone greater than ourselves to bring us up out of the slimy pit and to place our feet on the solid rock, the rock of our salvation, Jesus, the rock of ages, the rock that will never be moved. That's how humility leads to honor. In a culture like ours that sees humility as a weakness, Just think again about the warmongery and arrogance of Putin towards the Ukraine for a moment. It was the humility of Jesus that achieved his highest and greatest honor and exaltation. And yours too, if you say yes to him. Far from being a weakness. In the kingdom of God, humility towards Jesus is a superpower. We looked at the first few verses of David's Psalm 40. Let's, Let's finish now by looking back at some more of it. This is what David came to experience and know of God. Let this be instructive to us as we think about what it means for us to live humbly before God. David said, Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, who does not look to the proud and to those who turn away to false gods. Many, Lord my God, are the wonders you've done, the things you planned for us. None can compare with you. Were I to speak and tell of your deeds, it would be too many to declare. Sacrifice and offering, pious acts, that's not what you desire. But my ears you have opened. Burnt offerings and sin offerings, dry ritual you did not require. Then I said, here I am. I have come. It is written about me in your word. The invitation of the gospel has no precondition. It has only one word. Come. 
as you are. And as you do that, like David in the psalm, as you say, here I am, I have come. As you recognize your need for Jesus and as you say yes to him for the first time or for the hundredth time, as you recognize your humble state before an exalted God, like David, you realize that it is written about you in God's word. You are included in his plan. He is building a house for his name and you are invited in. David said, blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord. In your humility before the Lord, you can know blessing and favor and honor as you come to him. In all your ways, with all your fears and doubts and with all your baggage, come to Jesus this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are in shocked awe sometimes when we read these accounts and recall the fact that you are the most high king and yet you took on the nature of a servant. You became nothing so that you might go to the cross and die in obedience to the will of the Father for our sake so that we might be saved. For us, you did it for us. And we're so grateful to you for the cross. We're so grateful to you for all that you've done. Lord, we're so grateful that it was your humility that led to our honor, that it was your punishment that's led to our peace. And so I pray now, Lord, that you'd help us as a, as a family of believers, as brothers and sisters, to live in light of that, to live humbly before our God, to take very seriously our responsibility to adhere to your word and to bring glory to you. We ask this in your name, King Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together. Let's come in wonder and worship to the one who's paid it all for us. Sing when I survey. Yeah.